Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Project Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jaden. I'm part of the pastoral team out here at the Project. Uh, it's good to have you with us online. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. We're going to be continuing our eternity series today. I'm looking forward to it. And I want to begin this morning by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is what God's Word has to say. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until, who, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore... God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is God's word. Well, if you've been watching uh, free-to-air TV of late on a Sunday night, you'll notice that Channel 7's been playing a fair few of the Batman movies, which is something that's very dear to my heart most of my life. My nickname uh, has been Batman. In fact, many of the people I play football with don't even know my first name. Uh, That was my nickname for many years on the football field. Uh, And one of the uh, more recent Batman films in the Dark Knight trilogy is called The Dark Knight Rises. And there's a very interesting quote by one of Batman's arch nemesis, Bane, the evil mercenary Bane. And this is what Bane had to say one day to Batman. He said, Theatricality and deception are powerful agents against the uninitiated, but we are initiated, aren't we, Bruce? And what Bane was getting at, in effect, is that Batman has made a living out of deceiving his enemies. I mean, if you watch him at work, he uses grappling guns to make it look like he can fly. He uses uh, smoke bombs and other devices to to hide away from uh, sneaky and tricky situations. And then at the end of the day, the guy dresses up as a giant bat. You see, Batman's game is all about deception. But what Bane is saying to Batman here is, you can't fool me. I had the same training you did. You can't hide in the dark. You can use as many smoke bombs as you possibly like, but you're not going to fool me because Bane had been initiated and was not easily deceived. But sadly for the church in Thessalonica, though they had been initiated, though Paul had spent many hours with them in person teaching them about the second coming of Jesus, 
they had allowed themselves to become deceived and fall victim to some atrociously false teaching that had emerged. And there aren't many things that break a pastor's heart more than seeing God's people become the victim of false teaching. And we can hear the heartbroken words from Paul there in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? You see, the good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus came to earth the first time to come and atone for our sins, but Jesus is coming back a second time to consummate his kingdom and bring his people unto himself and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we don't know if it's some bogus letter that had uh, come into town supposedly from an apostle or if some rogue false teacher had strolled in and, and led them astray. All we know is that this church in Thessalonica thinks that Jesus had already come and gone and that Jesus had left them behind. What a tragedy. Just, just imagine that. Some Christian in the first century was panicking, maybe not sleeping at night, because they thought their Lord had forgotten them. That's some pretty crippling theology. <laughs> but the sad reality is, is that same error still gets taught today. In fact, there's a book series with that very title, Left Behind, that sold millions of copies worldwide. Uh, it was available, uh, I believe, in movie form on Netflix last year as well. And it forwards that same error that Paul is trying to correct just here. And this is just one of the many weird and wonderful and wacky end times teaching errors that plague the church today. You know, maybe you've even read or heard about some of them. You've heard about some ultra weird futuristic interpretations of Revelation where the locusts of Revelation 9 actually translates to mean military helicopters. Or maybe you think that at some point in history, every unbeliever is going to have the number 666 kind of tattooed to their forehead. That There's some weird stuff that goes around in this space. And what it all stems from fundamentally is just a failure to handle God's word in a sound manner, especially when it comes to New Testament prophecies and apocalyptic literature. I mean, seriously, think about it. Do you think that the Apostle John, writing to a persecuted first century church, who are watching their family members and their pastors and their friends getting tortured and killed, do you think the best pastoral care you can give them is to tell them about helicopters? I don't think that's in the pastoral care playbook in the first century. That's not what John is doing. Now, let me clarify at the outset. Don't get me wrong. There is room for healthy disagreement on the details surrounding Christ's return. We're going to see that as we go through our passage today. But there is some really wacky stuff out there that we need to avoid. So what does Paul do next? Well, he settles their anxiety like any good pastor. But he's also going to do a bit of revision, like any good teacher. And he says, no, 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 you, you've not been left behind. Don't, don't be silly. If you're in Christ, when he returns, he will gather you to himself. No one will snatch you out of his hand. Jesus promised us that. Now, let me remind you, he says, there is an event in history that has to take place before Jesus can come back. And he reminds them of this particular event. So read verses uh, 3 and 4 with me again. This is what he says. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. You see, the first thing that Paul tells the Thessalonian church is to look out for what he calls the rebellion. Uh, what, now, what, what does that mean, the, the rebellion? The, the Greek word there is actually apostasia, which is where we get our word apostasy from, which means uh, religious defection to abandon the faith, the kind of thing that the book of Hebrews warns us about. And Paul says that before Jesus returns, there's going to be a time of great apostasy. And then he goes on to say that this apostasy is going to be brought about by someone that he calls the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction, otherwise known as the Antichrist. And this man will be marked by his own self-exaltation in the temple of God. Now, that raises a very large interpretive question, doesn't it? Which rebellion, by which, rebel, which, by which rebel, and in which temple is Paul talking about? And here you are going to find a plethora of views. So what I want to do this morning, I want to just share two very commonly held views, which are safe views. I personally disagree with them, but they're commonly taught. And then I'm going to land the plane on what I think Paul's getting at here. So for some interpreters, they place the fulfillment of what Paul is saying here, the fulfillment of this prophecy in our past. Okay, so Paul wrote this letter in about AD 50, AD 51. And then about 15 years later, there was a particular rebellion that went on, a very particular Jewish rebellion. There was a war between the first century Jews and the Romans. And the culmination of this rebellion that went on for years was that the Romans sacked the temple in Jerusalem. And it was a very gruesome, bloody, atrocious war. But leading up to that, there was a man on the throne who was particularly lawless. His name is Nero. And such interpreters would say that the man of lawlessness that Paul is talking about here is Nero, right? He is a guy who persecuted, persecuted the church from AD 64 to AD 68. And like most Roman emperors, he was worshipped in the imperial cult as a god. And so for these interpreters, and this, this view is taught by some of the most faithful, uh, incredible Bible teachers on the planet, they would say that what Paul is talking about here has already happened. Now, I, I agree, there are parts of the Bible that talk about the destruction of the temple and uh, Nero's persecution. I think that's what Jesus is largely talking about in Matthew 24. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. And here's why. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is what Paul said in his first letter. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others, who <clears throat> as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, remember that word, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, there's another phrase I want you to remember, will come like a thief in the night. You see, what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians is what is commonly referred to as the rapture, that day when Jesus comes back, when he will gather his people uh, and they will ascend with him into the air. And what we notice is that he uses two particular phrases. He talks about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. And those two phrases get picked up again in our passage today, the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord which means that he's saying that the rapture and the return of Jesus are just two sides of the same coin. As some would teach that these events are seven years apart, but I would disagree with that. And it's because he's talking about the same event, I strongly doubt that the man of lawlessness here could possibly be Nero. So that's one interpretation. For others, they, they say, no, this, this, isn't a, this isn't a past temple at all. This is actually a future temple. In fact, what we're going to see is that one day in Jerusalem, the Israelites are going to rebuild the temple. And not only are they going to rebuild it, they're going to start the Old Testament sacrificial system again. And when that happens, it's going to be bound up with the ethnic salvation of Israel. And so for these interpreters, they say, well, no, Jesus couldn't possibly come back for sheer virtue of the fact we, we lack the necessary architecture. How could Jesus possibly come back if the temple hasn't been built yet and this has probably been the most commonly taught view of the last hundred years but i would just respectfully disagree with that and here's why um let's say a temple was built in the future let's say that's something the israelites do would paul look to a temple like that and refer to it as a temple of god as if god had somehow approved of this building of a temple as you read the new testament as i see it Jesus is done with temples. The old covenant is gone. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is all about. The old covenant is obsolete. Jesus pronounced judgment on that temple and its leaders throughout his entire life. And it was destroyed in AD 70 for a reason. So even if we do witness a rebuilt temple, as one author said, it would be a stench in the nostrils of God. It would have no redemptive significance whatsoever. Some interpreters would want to throw rocks at me saying that, but that's what I believe Paul's getting at. And the second reason is this, that view that we are waiting for a temple to be built in Jerusalem is actually a very new idea, particularly popularized after the Second World War when Israel became a nation again. We started to read texts like Romans 11 in bold letters. But no, I don't think this is a past temple or a future temple but I'm convinced that this is the language that Paul uses throughout the New Testament to describe the church. Look at just a couple of examples. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The church is the temple of God. 2 Corinthians six sixteen. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now you are welcome to disagree with me, but I think that what Paul is saying is that before Jesus comes back, we're going to witness a time of great apostasy in the church and that that apostasy will be paired with widespread persecution. Now that changes our lens, doesn't it? 
Because some people would have us believe, oh, if you're looking for the end, keep your eye fixed on what's going on in Russia or in China or some other political world movement. Some people would say, no, keep your eye on any kind of building proposals in Jerusalem. But Paul says, I believe, keep your eye on the church. Keep your eye on the health, purity, and biblical fidelity of the church. Now, at this point, some might say, okay, Jaden, that's great. What if this rebellion doesn't happen in my lifetime? What significance does this passage have for me? I mean, if this man of lawlessness is maybe centuries away, what does 2 Thessalonians have to do with my life? Well, look at verse 7. This is key. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. You see, the reason that we have to be alert, alert, not alarmed, lest we too be deceived, and not just on matters of Christ's return, but any doctrine, is because the Antichrist is already at work and has been at work for the last 2,000 years. The mystery of lawlessness was apparent in Paul's day and continues to be apparent in our day. In fact, do you know that the Antichrist has actually been in my house a few times? The last time the Antichrist visited... I heard a knock on my door to find two women standing there with an adulterated copy of the scriptures and they were ready to sell me a false gospel. And I chatted back and forth with these ladies, but ultimately they deny the deity of Jesus. And I said to them, ma'am, if what you're saying is true, then you would have to be calling the prophet Isaiah a heretic. Who's right or wrong here? And they left. You see, it's okay if someone disagrees with me on my conclusions on which temple is Paul talking about. That's, that's fine. But if, if you're going to deny the deity of Jesus, yeah, that, that's a problem. Because if Jesus isn't God, you're distorting the gospel. The gospel is that, the, is that God became man. And if you make Jesus less than that, if you pawn him off as something less than God, well, there's no gospel And Galatians 1 has a bit to say about that. You see, in the 4th century, one of the um, early church fathers, a guy by the name of Athanasius, he was a bit of a a gospel beast. And he went into bat to defend that truth, the deity of Jesus Christ. And he he fought off this group called the Semi-Arians. And and basically, these guys just wanted to say, hey, look, Jesus is pretty good. We we think he's like God. We don't want to say Jesus is God. We just think he's like God. But Athanasius knew, no, 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 that that won't do. If you take away the deity of Jesus, that becomes a gospel issue. And so he couldn't let that rest. And so he was battling that one for years and exiled on five different occasions, I believe, defending that truth. But you know what's fascinating? Is that between the two views, there was one letter separating the two views. Athanasius wanted to say, no, no, no. Jesus is God. He is of the same substance as the Father. The, the word used, he wanted to use was homoousios. The semi-Arians wanted to say, no, 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 he's homoousios. They just wanted to add one letter. And Athanasius spent his life fighting off the addition of one letter because he knew that that one letter was the difference between the true gospel of the New Testament and a false gospel. So Project Church, you need to know that those seemingly innocent women who came to my house that day are in some sense the Antichrist. 
Now, you see, for many of us, when, when we hear the word Antichrist, we think about some seven-headed beast with a kind of 666 cattle brand ready to tattoo people all day long. But look at how the Bible describes the Antichrist. Let's look at a few scriptures. 1 John 4, 2-3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Ready for this? This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Second John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. What's he saying? If you reject the doctrine of the incarnation that God became man, you're the Antichrist in some sense. You see, some of these false doctrines misrepresent who Jesus is and distort the gospel. Look at 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. It's plural. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And this is what Paul means when he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. You see, throughout church history, there have been heaps of lowercase a Antichrists that have plagued the church with false teaching. And sometimes that false teaching is paired with very uh, heavy hitting persecution. For example, we mentioned Nero before. Now, as I said, I don't think Nero is the complete fulfillment of our passage today, but do I think he's part of the mystery of lawlessness? Absolutely, I do. Do I think that the Christians in the first century looked at Nero and what he was doing to them and their fellow Christians and doing in the temple and went, is, is this what Paul was talking about? Absolutely, I think they were thinking that. I reckon they were thinking that for sure. But ultimately, Jesus didn't return. And then about 230 years later, another big persecution came under the emperor named Diocletian. And his persecution was so intense that to this, to this day, it is still referred to as the Great Persecution. And he was forcing people to participate in the imperial cult. And the apostasy at this time was intense. Oh, sure, there were, there were faithful martyrdoms happening. There were some very faithful Christians at that time. But many of the bishops were handing over copies of the scriptures to be burnt and saying, sure, I'll sign the dotted line, just don't burn me. Do you think the Christians, the faithful ones, at that point in history might have looked at Diocletian and thought, is this what Paul's talking about, the man of lawlessness and the apostasy and the persecution? Oh, I bet they were thinking that this was the final fulfillment. But Jesus didn't come back. Let's fast forward another 1,200 years to the time of the Reformation. Who do you think the reformers thought the man of lawlessness was? The Roman Catholic Pope takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. They thought, no, Christ is head of the church, not the Bishop of Rome. We don't need a vicar for Christ. Christ is our mediator. And when they saw the indulgences and that false works-based gospel and other corrupt teachings of that era, they thought they had their man. And in that sense, their assessment was quite sound. But he too was not the final Antichrist, but just another contributor to the mystery of lawlessness. Just another lowercase a Antichrist. Who else could be on this list? Hitler, maybe? 
I mean, it was a very liberal German Christianity that in some sense produced a monster like Hitler. But ultimately, all such men are merely teaser trailers. There's going to come a day when a Nero, Diocletian, Hitler-ish kind of guy emerges onto the scene and there will be apostasy in the church and the persecution will be widespread. And this figure, whoever it is, from whatever part of the world they're from, will deceive many people, some of whom will be people inside the church. And now the question is, why hasn't that day come already? Why doesn't Satan just get on with it and bring out his heaviest artillery right now or at some other point in history? Well, Paul tells us that this man of lawlessness is actually being restrained. Now, it's heavily debated what this restraining force is, and I won't go into all of the possible options, but whatever it is that, was, that is restraining uh, the man of lawlessness was at work in Paul's day and has continued to be at work up until our day. Paul says, you know, uh, in verse 6, you know what is restraining him now. So this is a restraining force that's at least 2,000 years old. So as I see it then, this restraint can't be coming from any human source, but in my view is an angelic restraint. Let me try and explain this a little bit more. Um, In in the early 2000s, I used to watch um, a footballer by the name of Michael Voss, who played for the Brisbane Lions, and Wayne Davis is nodding his head going, yes, I used to watch him also. Uh, And anyone who's followed football for long enough will remember that name. He was undoubtedly one of the best footballers the game has ever seen, and definitely one of the toughest. He was a formidable opponent. And one of the strategies that his coach, Lee Matthews, used to use with Vossi is that he would let him just sit on the bench for the entire first quarter. I actually watched him do it against the Saints at the Gabba one night. And Vossi would just be sitting on the sidelines, fresh as a daisy. And then the second quarter would come round, and he'd send Vossi out. And you knew that he was on the field. He was a fearsome ball winner. He was known to slide his knees into contests to try and break ribs. He was a tough dude, like many footballs in the 90s. Bring it back. Now, when it comes to the activity of Satan throughout the church, church age, as I understand Scripture, I think that Satan hasn't been a field but has been coaching from the bench, viciously coaching from the bench, sending all sorts of persecution and deception our way. And I think Jesus put him on the bench. Do you remember in Matthew 12, the religious leaders are asking, how is Jesus able to cast out these demons with such ease? And he says, oh, well, I, I bound the strong man. I, I took out the demonic equivalent of Michael Voss. I took out your best player. And that's why I'm able to cast out these demons with such ease. And then as you read scripture a little bit further, you see that somehow the cross, Jesus' victory on the cross, delivers some sort of fatal blow to Satan. And so there's a sense in which I think Satan has been nursing a 2,000-year-long hamstring strain, sitting on the bench, coaching viciously from the bench, no doubt, but he's not operating the way he once could because of what Jesus did when he first came. But one day will come... Acknowledging that this analogy has holes, (laughs) Satan's going to put a jersey on. He's no longer going to be coaching from the bench. He's going to put a jersey on and we're going to notice his presence. Satan is not the man of lawlessness, but the man of lawlessness is brought about by the unbound, unleashed and unrestrained activity of Satan. 
and I'm inclined to the view that this is what Revelation chapter 20 is getting at. Now, the moment I draw that connection between our passage and Revelation 20, again, some interpreters would want to throw rocks. Others would say, well done, good and faithful servant. It is heavily debated stuff. I may have to change my theology in the air, but I think it's a sound conclusion. So how should we view the Antichrist then? Anthony Hakima said it this way. He said, we conclude that the sign of the Antichrist, like the other signs of the times, is present throughout the history of the church. We may even say that every age will provide its own particular form of anti-Christian activity. But we look for an intensification of this sign in the appearance of the Antichrist, whom Christ himself will destroy at his second coming. So the overarching question for us today as it comes to application is this. Where are we prone to being deceived? Uh, In his uh, early 90s book, D.A. Carson, my favorite author, uh, The Gagging of God, he highlighted the fact that if you asked your average Christian, even just 50 years ago, hey, what's, what's Jesus been talking to you about of late? What's, what's Jesus been getting up to in your heart? Typically, not always, but typically about 50 years ago, if you asked your average Christian that question, they would say, oh, well, I've actually been reading Second uh, Kings and, and I've just been soberly reminded of the corruption that was going on in Israel at that time and how idolatry uh, really corrupted the nation. And it's reminded me of how I've got to keep on guard against idolatry in my own heart. And although these corrupt kings were such failures, how good is it that we've got King Jesus who came and rescued us? They would answer with respect to what they were reading in the Bible. Or they might say, yeah, what's Jesus been speaking to me about? Well, I've I've been in Deuteronomy and I just finished chapter 6 and Jesus has been speaking to me about how to disciple my children. But if you ask that same question today, what's Jesus been up to in your heart of late? What's he been speaking to you about? Most of the time, the answer is going to be far more subjective. Now, that is not to deny that the Holy Spirit doesn't impress truth upon our hearts and speak to us in that sense. But if you do throw a blanket over the Western church today, we are sadly, in D.A. Carson's assessment, and I agree, becoming more and more biblically illiterate. Alice and I are celebrating our first wedding anniversary tomorrow. Uh, Yes, we got married on Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. It's been an incredible year. I have a lot to be thankful about being married to Alice. And one of the things that I'm particularly thankful about is that she is an incredible cook. Uh, She makes all these incredible dishes from scratch. And one of the things that she makes from scratch is she makes her own sourdough bread. Uh, For the last 12 months, I've developed quite an appetite for it. Man does not live on bread alone, but bread's still pretty awesome. And I've been consuming quite a bit of sourdough bread, often close to an entire loaf in 24 hours. But do you know what it's done for me in some sense is I've become a little bit of a bread snob. (laughs) If someone dishes up Wonder White, I notice. (laughs) Because my usual diet is homemade non-refined sourdough bread. I read this week that when they're training FBI agents to spot counterfeit money, they don't hand them a bunch of counterfeit cash and teach them all the different ways you can fake it. No, they just hand them the real thing and say, study this thing meticulously and then you'll know when a, a, a fake one gets put in front of you. You see, the only protection against deception is discernment. Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, 
Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. So let me ask you today, Project Church, where are you prone to deception? Like, can you tell the difference between sound teaching and false teaching? Between a distorted, twisted gospel and the true gospel? You see, Bible reading has a dual function. It's first and foremost the there to guide us into the true and right worship of Almighty God. It's, it's the chief means of grace in a Christian's life that enables us to have intimate relationship with Jesus. But at the same time, Bible reading is a defense mechanism. As you read it and read it in such a way as to understand it, you will mature in your knowledge of the truth. And then if you happen to stumble across something false, you'll go, hmm, that's not sourdough. <laughs> that tastes a little bit more like Wonder White, right? Um, And for me, this is honestly why my pastoral highlight of the week is our Thursday night community group, where we open up God's word together with some of the families in our church and we seek to understand it. And sometimes there's a really healthy back and forth. Yet, What is verse 14 talking about? But eventually we get there and say, thus saith the Lord. And occasionally, or probably more than occasionally, I'll throw on the odd curveball just to make us think a little bit more. You see, I, I want my community group and really our whole church to be just a bunch of gospel ninjas who love Jesus, love their neighbors, are moving in the gifts of the Spirit, showing hospitality, but they can snuff out the odd false teaching from time to time that they get what D.A. Carson calls a theological nose. They, they, just, they just know when something's off. And that is not so that they can grow in their divisiveness, but in their discernment. One of the early church fathers Italian. He fought off a fair bit of false teaching in his time. And he used many analogies to describe the to- toxic effect of false teaching in God's people. He compared it to the sting of a scorpion or to a fever in someone's body. And then in one volume called The Prescription Against Heretics, he said these words. He says, In a combat of boxers and gladiators, generally speaking, it is not because a man is strong that he gains the victory, or loses it because he is not strong, but because he who is vanquished was a man of no strength. And indeed, this very conqueror, when afterwards matched against a really powerful man, actually retires crestfallen from the contest. In precisely the same way, heresies derive such strength as they have from the infirmities of individuals, having no strength whenever they encounter a really powerful faith." So my encouragement to us is let's be discerning, Christ-honoring, gospel-treasuring, Bible-reading Christians who are so well guarded against the mystery of lawlessness that we'll have nothing to fear and will not be deceived even when we ever encounter the man of lawlessness. Why doesn't the band come and join me at this point? Project Church, Jesus is coming back. And if you belong to him, if you've truly believed the gospel that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins, he will not leave you behind when he comes. Jesus does not operate that way. But (laughs) what of those who are not in Christ? Those who Paul describes in verse 10 as those who are perishing. Those who he says refuse to love the truth and take pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, what truth is he talking talking about here? Is he talking about truth in some weird abstract uh, way? No, he's, you could basically translate it to say those who refuse to love the gospel. What happens to them? 
will they suffer the fate of what verse 12 calls condemnation? Eternal condemnation. There's no pretty way to put it. If you reject Jesus and his offer of salvation in the gospel, you stand condemned. And shockingly, Paul says that for those who are recalcitrant in their unbelief, their condemnation begins now. Paul says that God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. If you reject the gospel, God will withdraw his counsel and by so doing, solidify the insanity of your unbelief. Sobering. John Calvin put it this way. He said, For after this light is removed, nothing but darkness and blindness remains. When his spirit is taken away, our hearts harden into stones. When his guidance ceases, they are wrenched into crookedness. And Romans 1, 24, 25 is basically saying the same things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God is in effect saying, you want to believe a lie? Okay. Believe it until you love it and die in it. There's nothing pretty about verse 12. Let me finish with this. It's by Gene Green. Eternal destiny is bound up with truth. To embrace error, however powerfully and plausibly it may be presented, is dangerous business. In our age, when truth is increasingly viewed as relative and personal, thought about the power and consequences of embracing error move to the periphery. The apostolic perspective is that there is a right way and a wrong way and that the power of Satan is and will be powerfully operative to assure that people, in the end, will be eternally lost. The stakes in the battle for truth and against error could not be higher. Project Church, I do not want you to be deceived. And for anyone listening who does not know Jesus yet, I implore you to repent and turn to Jesus. Don't throw your eternity away. Don't take pleasure in unrighteousness. Take pleasure in knowing Jesus and being known by him. Let's pray. Father, we are soberly reminded today that there is a mystery of lawlessness already at work seeking to deceive us. Lord Jesus, would you equip us such with your word and the power of your spirit and the community of the saints that we would not be the victims of such deception. Father, the message of the gospel is incredibly beautiful. You sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins. And that is a message we do not want to contaminate. We want it to be pure and undefiled, that you might be glorified through it and people may be saved through it. And Father, I pray for anyone listening who does not know you, that you would save them by the knowledge of that gospel today, Lord. Help us to be faithful messengers of that beautiful message all the days of our life. Amen.